you can take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 37. I'll be referring to several sections of passages in this portion of Scripture, which is a bit of an overview of the life of Joseph. Genesis 37 is where I'll start. I thought for the last sermon of the year, heading into a new year, that the doctrine of the providence of God would be the perfect way to encourage you to help edify us as we look towards 2024. Uh, Providence, for me personally, is uh, second only to the gospel itself, the gospel of our being reconciled with God through Christ. Second only to that proclamation, that truth, uh, is providence. Uh, I've found it to be the most practical doctrine for all of our lives. Uh, One of the main figures in the Bible where providence is so evident is the person of Joseph. Joseph's life, of course, is chronicled between chapters 37 and 50. Now, by the providence of God, I am referring to the way that God personally involves himself in the details and the events of history and the events of our lives. When we think of God's sovereignty, there we're talking about his all-powerfulness, his omnipotence, um, his lordship over all that comes to pass. When we talk of his providence, now we're talking personally, his actual application, his personal walking alongside the events that occur, and us included. It has to do with his personal guidance of events and actions. Now, what could be more practically important than understanding about how God is with us, guiding and directing? We look back at the last year, we've got questions about that in our minds, practically speaking. Where was the Lord in our life during those different times. The past is the best predictor of the future, and so that helps us consider what might be coming or how God will be with us as the year unfolds. What do we mean when we say God is with us? Sometimes after a trial occurs, someone might say to you, boy, the Lord was really with you when that happened. I find myself saying that when someone tells me something they've been through, a terrible trial, Uh, I can't understand how they even got through it. And I say, the Lord must have really sustained you during that time. Sometimes after a time of blessing, we look back and say, boy, the Lord really had his hand upon us when this or that happened. So, is the Lord with us more at some times than others? That's the practical question. I think an accurate understanding of how God is actually with us will be of major practical assistance for living life. And Joseph, I think, provides really a test case or an example case of God's providence. So as a refresher of Joseph's life, I'm going to highlight a few snapshots that show you the ebb and flow of his life. First, Genesis 37, starting at verse 3, I'll just read a few verses. It'll give you the picture, the setup of Joseph's life. Now Israel, this is verse 3 of Genesis 37, Israel, or Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Now, some verses ahead, as things unfold between the brothers, um, Jacob sends Joseph out to check on the brothers. Uh, They were tending the flocks some distance away. 
Genesis 37, verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. So from the highs of being his father's favorite, now cast into a pit by his own blood, his own brothers. Now we move ahead to chapter 39. In chapter 39, the first few verses, we find out what happens. The brothers have sold him into slavery. 39.1. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. From the pit, now to the palace of Potiphar. But he's in Potiphar's house, being dutiful and honest in all ways you could be, the ideal worker, servant. But then Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him, and he rebuffs those attempts. He's faithful in this, but she accuses him anyways and tells the master. Genesis 39, verse 19. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled, and Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. You see the flow. He goes from the palace of Potiphar. Now he's in the prison, starting out in a pit. It's been in every situation in life you can imagine. But then we skip ahead as he spends several years in the prison, only to be miraculously released by an ability that God gives him to interpret dreams, and one thing happens and another falls in place, and he interprets the dreams of servants of Pharaoh, and eventually Pharaoh has dreams himself that need interpreting. And Joseph is given the capacity to interpret the most powerful man in the known world's dreams. Genesis 41, 39 and 40. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. So Joseph started from a position of favor with his father. Next he finds himself in a position of disfavor with his brothers and thrown into a pit. Then he goes from that pit to the palace of Potiphar, and then from the palace of Potiphar to a prison, and then from the prison, he goes to another palace, the palace of Pharaoh. Palace to pit to palace to prison to palace, ups and downs. When do you suppose that God was most present in Joseph's life? The palace, the prison, or the pit? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer and ask God to help us understand this truth from his word. Let's pray. Lord, we do know that you are present, but we don't often understand how and when. We believe in you. We know what you have done for us through Christ. 
We know that you are our God and our Father. We sense our adoption in Christ through the ministry of your Spirit. Yet, sometimes and in some circumstances, we do not feel your presence, or we can't interpret how it's working. We acknowledge your care, your protection, and your provision, but we struggle to understand your presence in our lives. In our humanness, we might think that with all you have to do, of what importance is a little life that we are living. Please teach us by your word. I pray this through Christ. Amen. There have been many popular attempts to quantify the presence of God in the life of a believer. I'll bet you are all, whether you will admit it or not, familiar with the Footprints poem. In fact, if I were to scour the recesses of your cabinets, I could probably find a mug somewhere that has this written on it. Uh, Maybe you had it on your old Windows 3.1 screensaver at one time. Footprints showed up. Maybe your Aunt Clara had a cross-stitch of the poem framed in her house somewhere. You know how the poem goes. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. He noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints, and it was at the lowest and saddest time of his life that this occurred. He was bothered by only one set of footprints and said to the Lord, I don't understand why when I needed you most, you would leave me. And of course, the answer from the Lord in the poem During your times of trial and suffering, when you see only one set of footprints, it was then that I carried you. Now, the poem at least illustrates how many Christians understand God's presence in their lives. And it's good to be reminded of his presence at all. We're thankful for that. But what the poem clearly suggests is that God is specially present more at some times than others when there's only one set of footprints. And really, that's what we are saying to some degree when someone comes through a trial and they say, boy, the Lord was really with you then. Or a blessing occurs, boy, the Lord really blessed us. He really was there for us. There is some sense in our minds, some feeling that God is more with us at some times than others. So I think we should go to Scripture to be guided and molded according to what is true. Because I believe that our tendency to worry to be anxious, to be nervous, to stress out about things, this can be greatly addressed when we have a proper understanding of how God is present in our lives. What could be more practical heading into a new year with all sorts of expectations before us? With the person of Joseph in mind and his experience, we'll do a quick survey of his ups and downs and then ask this question, when was God most present in the life of Joseph. Hopefully that will help us interpret our own lives. Now I'd say from the get-go, if you were just to do a quick glance at his life and consider all the amazing things that happened, you might be tempted to say that God was most with Joseph when he was in those palace experiences of his life. They were so supernaturally derived, so clearly the hand of God upon Joseph to put him in those palaces of his life. There are at least three palaces I would point to in his experience. The first was just how he was born. He was born into the palace of his rich father, Jacob. He was the second youngest son and clearly the favorite son. 
one of the sons of Rachel. The most favored of them all, Moses, the author, tells us that clearly in Genesis 37.3. Now, Jacob loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. Uh, this place of privilege and status in palace experience from the get-go because he was the son of his old age, and he also made him a robe, a special expensive robe of many colors. Now, the coat was probably just one of many special things that he, Jacob did outwardly for his son Joseph, showing his favorite status. When Jacob or Joseph was in difficulty in his life, he probably looked back at his childhood and thought, ah, those days of my youth. I could go to the fridge anytime I want and eat anything I want. I could take dad's credit card anytime I want and go buy whatever I want. Not many responsibilities. All the luxuries of my rich parents at my constant disposal. He probably thought, man, Lord, you were with me in those days. But then, how about the palace of Potiphar? Here he is sold out by his brothers. Can't get worse than that. But then God miraculously has him be bought through slave traders to a guy who didn't send him to build pyramids or have him die as in hard labor like most slaves did in that time. He was put in a palace. Not only was he put in a palace, he was made the most powerful man in that lavish estate. In Genesis 39, Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites. And the Lord was with Joseph. Moses tells us the Lord's with him, clearly. Could we not say he's most with him here? Look at what it's taken to get him here. And because the Lord was with him, he became a successful man. There it is. The palace experience. That must be where God is most with his children. He was in the house of his Egyptian master, and he had all this success. You can't get much clearer. It spells it out. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph. As he continued on in his ministry, or in his work with his Egyptian master, the master saw that the Lord was with him and caused all that he had done to be successful. It repeats multiple times in chapter 39 that the Lord was with him. Joseph found favor in his sight, attended him. He was the overseer. Everything was put in his charge. Everything that Potiphar had, he said, here. So in essence, he was living the life of Potiphar vicariously now, running his household. Because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. And there is Joseph in that palace, everyone at his command, enjoying all the comforts of his master's estate. The Lord was with Joseph. As if it couldn't get better, that's not his last palace experience. Whatever he had in Potiphar's palace was realized exponentially, in exponentially multiplied form with the house of Pharaoh the most powerful man in the known world. And God delivers Joseph into that palace to be the highest ranking person besides only Pharaoh. And even Pharaoh listened to his counsel about everything he decided. The Lord was with Joseph so that he can interpret dreams. He gave him a divine ability. How much more evidence would we need than this to say that God was most with Joseph when he was in the house of Pharaoh? In chapter 41, Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Even Pharaoh recognizes the Lord with him. Pharaoh, a pagan, recognizes the Lord. It's got to be the most when you're in the palace in these kind of experiences. Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, 
there is none so discerning and as wise as you, because God's with you. There's no one smarter or wiser than you. You'll be over my whole house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater. The Lord was with Joseph. That, that formula appears in like form with the major figures of the Old Testament. It shows how they're able to do what God has them do. The Lord was with Noah when he set out to build the ark. The Lord was with Abraham many times along the way when he was called by faith to follow. King David is described this way in 1 Samuel. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. So his palace experience, his successful experience, that's when the Lord is most with him, right? Moses had the same thing said about him as did Joshua. In Joshua 1.5, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you, and I will not leave you or forsake you. There's Moses in the palace of Pharaoh in his day. And there's Joshua over the nation of Israel to lead them into the promised land. That's when God must most be with us. Where's the palace for you? What's your palace experiences, those epics in your life that are so incredibly blessed? You have a sense of joy, a sense of God's presence with you. Maybe it's some major accomplishment of a major goal. Maybe you have a child or you're holding a grandchild a job promotion. You just got engaged. There's such fulfillment in your relationship with your fiance. Maybe you're empty nesters now, spending time with one another as never before. A sense of job security, a vacation where there's no cares in the world. I think the last couple of weeks have been like a palace experience for our family, having all of our children together seeing our son graduate from college, having just a, just a wonderful gathering. And as, as you get older, what becomes a palace experience is simpler, just being with each other because it's so rare to have each other together, to enjoy f- feasting together, just enjoying celebrating together. Those periods of time, that must be when God is most with us. Certainly we would say that, but I think not. We have to look further in the life of Joseph and try to figure this out. Sure, when things are good, we can see God's hand. We know it's from him. Yes, he is with us, no doubt, in a major way. But the story of Joseph reminds us of God behind the scenes when things aren't going well. Might we say that God was most with Joseph, not when he was in the palace, but when he was in the prison? Maybe that's when he was really most with him. Joseph was terribly and wrongly accused when he was in the palace of Potiphar. We know what happened, or you're familiar with the story, as she set him up. He was doing the right thing by rebuffing her advances. In chapter 39 of Genesis, And after a time his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, How can then I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Here he is being faithful, yet she's setting him up. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. What helped him in this moment? One day, it says in the same chapter, when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men were in the house, she caught him by the garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled out of the house. As soon as she saw what had happened with the garment in her hand, she called to the men of the house and said, look what this guy did. This Hebrew that was brought in here, he's laughing at us and mocking me and treating me this way. 
As soon as the master heard the words that the wife had been speaking, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. Of course it was. And Joseph's master put him in the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were. Now, we might say God's abandoned him. But the penalty for this kind of action would have been death. So something in Potiphar restrains that impulse, and he puts him in the prison instead. As quickly as he ascended into Potiphar's house, the situation is now reversed. He's lied about, which is painful. His name is disparaged. He's maligned. His reputation is sullied. A shadow is cast about his character. His freedoms are taken. A complete turnabout in the freedoms and privileges he had just like that. That's how fast it can happen. Terrible psychological trauma, emotional trauma. A dungeon now he finds himself in of sorts. Not comfortable, nothing easy about it. But there, in the prison, the footprints show up. And we might say, when you really analyze it, that's where they most showed up. In chapter 39, in the prison, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. Here he is in prison, and now he's gaining the favor of the person who watches over because the Lord was with him. There it is, in the prison experiences, the difficulties, the times that things are out of our control, the comforts are taken away. That's when God is most with us. The keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. I mean, imagine this. The prison guard His life is on the line based on what happens in the prison, and he gives charge of the prison to Joseph. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him, it says. Again, explicitly, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This has to be where God is most with us in our prison experiences. Where have your prison experiences been? Those times of terrible trial, when things seemed out of control, you couldn't do anything to change the situation. You found yourself under this pressure, feeling like you were captured, in some way trapped. It could be a crisis of health. I know many of you have suffered these kinds of things. I have not suffered many of these things in my life, but not too long ago, I had a little taste. In fact, it was in April, going to a presbytery, my heart rate just started going so fast, it's like 170 beats a minute. I couldn't stop for like a half hour, it felt like I ran a marathon. So I go to the hospital, they give me some medicine to calm it down, but something still wasn't right. Then I was here at Christ the Redeemer, May 7th, Billy Hastings, during his ordination, and I was up here giving a charge. I was not feeling good before, and I wasn't feeling good when I was standing up here. It felt like someone was driving a flagpole right, that's how I describe it, a big pole right into the center of my chest. I was sure I was having a heart attack. So I told Cherry, I went out to the car. I tried to talk to some of you, but I couldn't because I was not feeling well. So I sat in the car for a while, and as we're driving off, she thought, are you going to be all right? I said, well, let's just go home. We didn't get far down the road. I said, no, let's go to St. Luke's. So I went to the ER, and they tested me for all sorts of stuff. And it wasn't a heart attack, I was glad to find out, but it started a process of several weeks and even months of tests where I felt like, what's going on? I don't understand. I can relate with people who are waiting for these tests to come. Is it going to be as bad as I think? What is the problem? I don't feel right. Things aren't good. Maybe it's really bad. It also proved to me a lack of faith that I had, and it wasn't a highlight moment in my life for the way I was feeling. But through that process, the Lord made me depend on Him more, brought people to say good things to me, doctors to find out It wasn't as big a deal as I thought. In fact, it was related to all the things I was doing, and I needed more self-control in those areas. 
all those things I needed to learn, which were painful to learn and felt for a while like I was completely trapped, was the way that God showed his presence to me so clearly. Sometimes these things in your life, whatever they may be, could be some financial strain you have, a crisis you have with your parents or your children, something that's out of your control. Um, You don't do well in the test of faith, but God does well, and he proves himself to you, and he grows your faith through that situation. Could be a situation out of your control, unfair even. You feel trapped, whatever the case is. This could be your prison experience. I think this is the gist of what the psalmist is getting at when he says in Psalm 23, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. When Paul was struggling with something that kept burdening him and was hindering his ministry, he cries out to the Lord several times for God to relieve him of this prison experience that he was having. It says in 2 Corinthians 12, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. I'm going to show my presence to you in a magnificent way. Therefore, Paul says, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. There it is. The prison experiences, the trials, the challenges, the things that are out of our control that cause us to have to rely on God, that's when God is most with us. Must be the case. True in Joseph's life, got to be true in our life. Of course God was with Joseph in the palace. Clearly God was with Joseph in the prison. But I don't think we can say he was most with him in the prison, as much as it's clear he was with him in a special way. We have to look at the very beginning of this whole journey that describes Joseph's life to find where God was most with him. God was most with Joseph, not in the palace of the prison, but we might say when he was thrown in the pit. That is the most desperate place of his life. Basically left for dead in the pit. Totally helpless. In fact, the way Moses describes his experience is meant to evoke in us a total sense of loss for Joseph. Genesis 37, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. You see why Moses adds that? No amount of his household management, chief operating officer skills could get him out of an empty pit. Not even water there to sustain him. He was a dead man lying in that pit. Only a rescue from outside could change his fate, and he could do nothing to conjure it. Once in that cistern, there was no action that he could do to manipulate himself into a rescue. And just when all seemed lost, footprints show up in the cistern. Genesis 37, the brothers sat down to eat while their younger brothers in this pit, thinking about what to do with him. They wanted to kill him. Then looking up, they saw a caravan, it says, of Ishmaelites. These are people who go to and from Egypt and up through the north. And they were with their camels, and they had gum and balm and myrrh. They had goods, and they were on their way to Egypt. Judah, one of the brothers, said to the other brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. Do you see the footprints of God, a most desperate moment, even working through these guys, his brothers, who have already 
really fixed to kill him. God's presence manifests itself, footprints everywhere. The brothers decide to sell him instead of killing him. And it's that malicious business transaction that they think they're doing all on their own with the Ishmaelites that begins Joseph's incredible journey that we have perused. And Joseph himself sums it up best at the end of his life, speaking to his brothers when he says, as for you, you meant evil against me when they threw him in the pit or when they sold him. But God meant it for good. So God was the one doing it. God was with him. God was most with him in this moment. And why did he do it? To bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. They, they threw him in the pit. They thought they were doing it. But God was there. God was doing it. One commentator says, God's secret providence is behind the darkest deeds of men and works to their ultimate good. When it seemed that God was not with him, when it would seem that God had abandoned him, he discovers over time that it was God who meant all of that for good, even though they meant it for evil. God was most clearly with Joseph when he was in the pit, right? Would we not say that? Can we see how this desperate hour requires God to be with him, absolutely with him? Nothing else could save him? How could God be more with Joseph than when he was in the pit? Uh, Couldn't we surmise that of all the times in Joseph's life, he had to be most with him when he was most helpless in the pit? Where was the pit for you? At these times when you are able to notice God's rescuing hand, those times when there's absolutely nothing you could do to change your situation. Sometimes it could be a sinful pattern that we find ourselves enslaved to, similar to Joseph's pit experience, and only God can grab us out of it. Try as we might to stop, the besetting sin keeps besetting. And only God's sovereign hand on us breaks the behavior and stops the sin. Trapped. Even the darkest corners of your life, footprints show up there, even if you don't see them at the moment. How about the time before you knew Christ, if you can remember it? Talk about the ultimate pit, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You can't get any any more into a pit than in the state of sin that we are in before we come to know Christ. Then Christ comes to you when all is lost and he saves you, and you recognize him. He's your Lord. All of us were completely helpless, unable to save ourselves at one time. For some of us, we've been Christians for a long time, and it's hard to think of the pit, but you were there. Life starts estranged from God in the pit because of sin. Perhaps you remained in that pit for several years, no purpose in this life that you could see, dead in your transgressions and sins. In Joseph's seemingly helpless situation, there then came a rescue. In that pit, footprints showed upon the dry cistern walls. And while it seemed that the time God was not there, that God was not present, we know that nothing could be farther from the truth. It was in that time in Joseph's life and in our lives when God shows himself to be miraculously there, savingly there. The psalmist writes in Psalm 40, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon the rock, making my steps secure. Out of the pit and then your steps secure. There was Joseph, completely helpless, unable to help himself or to save himself. And God saved him from the pit, but then God carried him out of the pit and throughout his life. 
made his steps secure. You know, brothers and sisters, if we are totally honest with the biblical record and what it shows, there never really is a time in the life of Joseph, or is there ever a time in your life or mine where there are two sets of footprints, as the poem suggests? There's only one, and they are those of the Lord Jesus carrying us. God was most present in the life of Joseph when he was in the palace. He was most present when he was in the prison. And he was most present when he was in the pit and everywhere along the way. We have to recognize that, that he is in all these places. I would like to suggest a new poem to you. Now, I am not a poet, and I know it, but this is still a better poem than the one that you have on your aunt's cross-stitch framed picture. One night, a man had a dream. He dreamed he was walking on the beach with the Lord. Across the sky, a life flashed before him. There was a cross and a grave. Footprints led to the cross, then skipped over to the grave. To his surprise, the footprints continued on the other side of the grave. When he saw the impression of his dead body lying there on the sand, the footprints meet the impression, lift up the body, and go on through all the ups and downs of life. The man was perplexed and asked the Lord, what is the meaning of this? Why is there only one set of footprints? The Lord replied, my precious child, you were dead, but I made you alive. And it is I who carried you from the pit, and I carry you still today. I will never leave you nor forsake you, whether you be in the palace, the prison, or the pit. Now, a much better declaration than any poem a person can write comes to us from Isaiah 46. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age, I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, and I will carry, and I will save. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, when we fail to realize your presence, please point us to your word. It is in your word that we find the truth. Your word is where we find what is real. We thank you, O Lord, for never leaving us and never forsaking us. You have said that your presence will go with us. Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. You have promised to never leave us or forsake us. You have promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. Thank you for this. Make this truth in our lives to be most practical, especially as we head into this new year. In Jesus' name, amen.